Hot Plate Brewing is an upcoming Latin and woman-owned brewery in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where the combination of owners Mike and Sarah join forces showing their love of craft beer, the appreciation for true-to-style brewing, and making some of the -the off-the-wall styles on top of it. They talk about the competition of craft beer in the northeastern United States and explain how they went from their humble beginnings of a hot plate in their tiny New York City apartment to a full-time brewing facility. Learn from their mistakes and get ready for the upcoming Hot Plate Brewing. Whether your beer is in a bottle, can, or glass, kick back and relax. It's Better on Draft. Welcome, everybody. Episode 305 of the Better on Draft podcast. My name is Ken. Thank you so much for joining us. I truly appreciate it. It is another Friday. Just some quick notes. Uh, first of all, all of our social media is Better on Draft, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Untapped. Uh, that's where you can find us. Go follow us, like us, uh, listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff, betterondraft.com. Uh, we are going to be off the next two weeks. That's right, November 4th and November 11th. We are off. We will be back November 18th with the brewery in studio. But let's go around and see what everybody is drinking, starting with Rob. Rob, what do you got? Uh, Right now, I am sipping on two things. One in the glass is Untitled Arts S'mores Dark Brew. Uh, And also, I'm trying this out this week, This uh, something called Seed Lip. It is a non-alcoholic spirit that is just with distilled citrus botanicals. I was thinking when it said botanicals that I could go like kind of gin and tonic with it, but it's very weird because it kind of gives this like watermelony kind of taste to it. So I've been I'm now just mixing it inexplicably with uh, cranberry and ginger ale uh, Canada Dry. <laughs> that was one of the fifths we had on our first series of Dry January back in 2020 when Nick Britsky came in from Nick Drinks to do NA cocktails for us. Uh, so that was one of the things that we had. So we'll have to go back and see what Nick suggested. Wendy, what are you drinking? I have a uh, fruited Berliner Weiss uh, Prana from City Built Brewing. All right. And for myself, uh, I'm going to try to do maybe like once a week drink one of these, but it is the alt beer from the Missouri Brewers Company and the Misery Loves Company, Missouri Loves Company. And I'm going to be following that up with a, uh, a lager from Second Self, the La Fria. Uh, lager. Uh, we do have guests in studio uh, who are getting ready to open their very, very first brewery over in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Uh, welcome, Mike and Sarah. Why don't you guys introduce yourself? We'll start with Mike and uh, tell us um, a little bit about the brewery. Sure. I'm Mike DeLacrila. I am the co-founder of Hot Plate Brewing Company. Um, as you mentioned, we are a uh, brewery in planning still. We're hoping to be open by the end of the year in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Um, we're going to have a seven barrel system and an attached tap room. Um, so we're going to be right downtown, um, which is kind of a good thing. Downtown Pittsfield's going through a little bit of a revitalization right now. And, and we're excited to be a part of that. Um, we have been brewers, home brewers for almost nine years now. I started first as a hobby and uh, Sarah quickly proved herself to be the better brewer. And so I can let her talk about her own journey. Um, but What is funny, I think, about the two of us, so I have a creative background, an English degree, um, and I'm a fiction writer, and brewing was just kind of a hobby to keep myself busy. We've been craft beer fans for almost 20 years now, and um, I got a kit, you know, started brewing that way, and I really colored 
in the lines. You know, I really stuck to like Ryan Heinzkebot rules. I was really like, no, no, this is like what a porter is. This is what an ale is. And, um, you know, Sarah has a much more kind of Belgian approach of like, hey, if it tastes good, it is good. And so we have found that as brewers, we have very different points of view. And um, this is an area that I'm very rigid and very rule driven. And Sarah really likes to kind of flex and go in all these different ways. And so she, I think I was her first convert in a lot of ways um, with some of the recipes she made. And um, she's kind of just taken it from there. So I'll let her kind of introduce herself. I am Sarah Rael. I'm the owner and brewster at Hot Plate. Um, we'll be seven barrel system. We're going to have 12 taps. And um, I went into the space today. They were starting to work on the cold storage. So it's very exciting to see this massive, very clean um, cold storage in there, nice and shiny new toys. Um, and yeah, I've been brewing with Mike. Um, I do consumer insights as a day job. So I'm very much live in Excel, love numbers, love order. Um, but with brewing, like I, I grew up cooking and baking. So I just kind of translated or transferred that to brewing, um, and really just kind of seen what can be done. I would have put Mike as the, uh, the chef just because it is, um, you know, you, he was talking about how rigid he was and how you have to kind of like follow to the rules. And, and a lot of chefs, obviously bakers more specifically, you have to follow, you know, to the exact rules or you're mm-hmm. going to mess it up. Whereas, you know, chefs, I guess if you, if you take the, the approach, if you guys ever seen the movie accepted with Justin Long from like 16 years ago, where the guy's <laughs> just like, you know, throwing it. Oh, that sounds good. Um, you know, the wads, that's a, that's what he was cooking. The wads. Um, now your guys' story involves home brewing in a tiny, tiny apartment over in New York city, um, yep. which is actually the, uh, the namesake of your brewery hot plate. What was explain brewing in such a confined space? Um, and the, I guess, hardships, uh, that you had to go through to brew there. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we didn't get into home brewing right away, um, our, our journey into craft beer actually kind of started when we both went to Penn State. Um, so that's where we met and we, we started dating at Penn State. And after we graduated um, in 2005, we took a cross-country trip. And, you know, at that point, craft beer was just starting to hit that like precipice that became the boom, you know, that we've been kind of living through. And so we weren't getting still on the East Coast, like a lot of the awesome beer that was happening on the West Coast. So going out there and kind of discovering a lot of what was happening in Colorado. Um, we had a friend whose parents lived in Colorado. So we stayed almost a week out there and we were in the new Belgian brewery and Sarah turns to me. She's like, I want to do this. And I was like, what, what do you mean do this? She's like, all of this. I, like, I want to do this. And I was like, uh, we just like got our degrees. Neither of them are in like, you know, fermentation sciences or, or chemistry or anything like that. So we kind of put it on the back burner, decided to put our degrees to, to use and got jobs um, we were in California for a year and a half and then went to New York City. Um, so when we were living in New York City, it was like, oh, we can't really get into brewing. Like we have this tiny space. But I had a coworker several jobs ago who was telling me like, oh, I, you know, I homebrew. And I was like, oh, really? You can do that even in like a tiny apartment? And he was like, yeah. And so I went and like got one of those one gallon kits. And, you know, again, when you're first starting out, you're doing the extract brewing. So it's like you get all the sugars basically are already made. So it's really fail safe. And then you just put the steeping grains in for a little bit of flavor and aroma and color and try to make it like different. You know, they all kind of taste the same when you're using extract beer. Um, so when I started, you know, we had a fully functioning kitchen. Um, we had a normal stove. I would bring up to a boil. 
And so we got into it and we started really kind of just enjoying the novelty of making our own beer, serving it to our friends, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I would say at this point in the story, it's pretty much every home brewer's journey. What threw us for a curveball was that when Sarah was starting to get a little bit uh, antsy professionally, and I've always had an ambivalence toward my own career. Um, you know, I, I got a day job because I had to, but I've always wanted to just, you know, write the great American novel and, and not have to you know, work. So I was always ready to like find something new. And so Sarah was like, you know what, maybe it's time. We knew we weren't going to have kids. And so in like 2016 or so, 2016, 2017, it was like, Hey, maybe let's get serious about this dream of, of starting a brew we had, at that point, no idea what it would take or anything. Um, and then right when we were starting to get serious about this, the condo we were living in in Brooklyn had a code violation. Uh, it was a new construction. Everything had been inspected. We had our own inspection. We thought everything was good. Turns out um, there was something that was installed incorrectly with our boiler. So the city came and they turned off our gas. And you know, rather than give up on this idea of uh, continuing to brew and refine our recipes and learn the craft, Sarah being pretty stubborn and, and pretty resilient as a person was just like, no, screw it. Let's go get a hot plate. Let's keep doing it. And it's and so, so she started taking classes um, at Bitter Nesters, which, you know, shout out to Bitter Nesters. They're one of the best homebrew shops in the country. Um, they literally won an award for it a couple of years ago. And um, so they were like right around the, the block from us in Brooklyn. And we started taking classes there. And it was always funny because they're like, you know, the number one thing you don't want to probably be doing is brewing on a hot plate because just even bringing up to a boil takes like hours. Um, but one of the things that we found during those years, so we ended up living uh, for three three plus years without heat and hot water. Um, as time went on, and this just became more and more of almost like a defining quality in our life of like, oh my God, when are Mike and Sarah going to get their heat back? Um, we were brewing and still having people over, at least before COVID hit. And we'd have these tasting parties and we just found that like this act of making beer, serving it to our friends, it like gave us something to actually look forward to. And actually having people over for that period of time could take our minds off of things. Um, but that's where Sarah really got to play around and start showcasing kind of the things that she was thinking about doing. So, you know, Sarah, if you want to talk about like your early recipe designs and and kind of, you know, your part of the kind of. Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely um, kind of going back to like, how did we do it in such a small apartment? Like we started off again with extract two and a half gallons. So a reasonable size pot, you know, and um, we had a, a nice Cuisinart hot plate that I used. Um, but as we kind of just kept doing that, started getting our reps, we're like, okay, well now we're, we're going to bottle condition. So then we had stacks of boxes of bottles. Um, and then we're like, okay, well let's, let's size up to, you know, five gallons. So then we got a different condition. So th the things started kind of collecting and already, um, in a very small space, um, you know, you just pull that one thing out and like all the rest of the shit comes on your head and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Um, but especially for us, like, indoors in a coat in the winter. That was definitely it. Um, but we tried to expand because it was like, you know, extract just to me, it just all started to taste the same. So I didn't feel like I could be creative with anything. Um, so then when we finally moved to, uh, all grain, it was great because then we could definitely play around. Um, I just, you know, started writing recipes because it's like, Oh, I like this rather than just copying it. Like, how do I want to make it my own? Um, so then that's when kind of our, our equipment started becoming like our furniture as well. Um, so a mash tun makes a great seat when it's empty. 
Um, and so it's, you know, it, it was challenging, but it's just one of those things that, especially living in Brooklyn and living in New York city, you're like, I'm, I'm just going to do this. This is what it is. Um, but uh, it was very challenging and it's sometimes hard to be, to allow yourself, your mind to be creative when you just feel like everything's kind of caving in. Well, um, the one thing, the one thing I do want to say though, is there is actually a pretty sizable homebrewing community in New York. Like we all live in these tiny apartments, but there is like a really dedicated group of people. And I think when we really got inserted into those homebrewing clubs and and the tasting or the swap parties at, you know, Bitter Nesters, you would find that like everyone was kind of in that same, I mean, we're all kind of insane, I guess, you know, but it's like, okay, you have like 600 square feet and like at least a hundred square feet is like dedicated to either brewing equipment or beer or your kegerator or something. But then when you meet those people, it's this really like great connection because you're all insane in the same way. Being in a small apartment in Detroit, that was a reason why I didn't homebrew prior to when I homebrewed in Michigan. Now I, I was, I did have a electric stove, not a gas stove. Um, and I know a lot of people talk about utilizing, uh, electric versus gas and how, uh, long it takes and stuff. Um, explain to me a little bit about, uh, like where you kept all your ingredients. Did you just kind of just like buy what you needed for that day or, you know, cause there's more than brewing than just even the equipment. It's all the extra right. stuff that you have to have. Um, like where, where did you keep all that stuff or did you, again, did you just kind of like buy it the day of? Yeah, it was definitely part of that kind of, you know, the grocery shopping that you're used to, you can only bring home as much as you can carry. So uh, luckily because the homebrew shop was just down the block, we would go, you know, if we knew we would usually brew on the weekend. So it was kind of like um, Thursday or Friday evening, right before we closed, we'd go get all the ingredients. So it was just one yeast pack, you know, this, bag of grain. Um, and, and it's funny because even when we would do that and you bring home this bag of grain, that seems very, you know, in the whole scheme of things, very small, you put it on the counter in your apartment and you're like, Oh, well, where do I put the rest of my, where do I plate dinner? You know? So, um, it was, it was challenging because if something, if we ran out of something and the store wasn't open, we never had a backup of anything. Um, so it has been, almost luxurious to have, you know, a backup of something, or if we want to change our mind real quick and think, actually, why don't we play with this yeast or um, let's, let's add something else. Um, It's nice to have those options. Whereas we were like, this is the recipe we're making. Nothing better go wrong. (laughs) Well, I think now that I'm thinking back, because we've been out of that apartment for more than a year now, we've been in the Berkshires for uh, a little over a year. Um, We would do things like in the kitchen, in the corner, there were just the stacks of the boil kettle and the mash tun. And it was just like, just in the corner. And so like having people over, we did kind of look like mad scientists because like the, you know, we'd have our fermenters kind of in, in our living room and a shady area in the living room. We'd have our brewing equipment just kind of like stacked in, in a corner. Um, the ingredients, like Sarah said, we'd usually just get as needed. And we were fortunate I would say spoiled because you could basically run to the store on a brew day if you needed something. So, you know, we were lucky in that regard, but as we started getting more serious and I think every home brewer probably relates to this as you start and then suddenly it becomes your obsession and then you get more and more stuff and you're like, well, if I want to make better beer, I've got to get this thing and I've got to get that thing. And, you know, when we got a kegerator, you know, it's like suddenly that's a now piece of furniture in our living room because there's nowhere else to put it. And so, you know, the people that, have like, have always lived to kind of in the suburbs and, you know, 
brewed either outside or in a basement or in a garage, you know, they've had a kind of dedicated spot. We just, once we got all in, it was like, okay, well, this is just, we're living among these things now. Um, and it was, it was cramped, you know, and I think when COVID hit and we were sheltering in place in this tiny place, it felt more insane. Um, you know, when you're in New York, you're not spending a ton of time in your apartment, you're out a lot. So it didn't feel as suffocating as it did when we were, you know, spending 24 hours in the apartment. I bet. Now you guys are in the uh, western part of Massachusetts. Um, obviously, the the nor'easter area. Everybody is craving about New England IPAs. Is that something that we're going to be expecting from you guys, uh, or is that you know not to compete in the space where it's kind of flooded already? We oh, go ahead, Sarah. You can. Uh, um, so we are. You know, we'd like to make money, so we will be having. <laughs> New England IPAs, um, they are still quite popular around here. Uh, there are a couple breweries around us that are doing great ones. Um, so we know what they're doing. So we are, as we kind of do with a, a lot of our beers, not all of our beers, but doing our take on it. So um, what can what can we do a little differently um, to still serve, you know, a hazy to bring people in the door? Um, but I mean, this kind of just leads into talking about our tap list of we're going to divide it into thirds. So the first third is going to be more uh, classic European styles. We'll have a cream ale there. Uh, we build, Our location is right next to the police station. So, you know, we need to have some post-shift loggers, easy drinkers. Uh, the middle part is kind of going to be what, whatever is popular. So that's where the New England IPAs would live uh, for now um, and to bring people in. And then the last third is going to be kind of the, the place I like to play around. So that's where we have uh, my chamomile blonde ale, jalapeno pale ale, um, just kind of the different things that, that I like to play with. Wendy. So uh, speaking of those types of things that you like to play with, um, what are some of the ingredients that you are really excited to be able to do now that you are in a bigger space? I know everything can't be an answer, um, but <laughs> but it, it really is. I think for me, uh, playing around more with the hops um, because at a at a homebrew size, you I mean you're not limited, but you are a little bit. Um, so I am very excited to be able to do more mixing of that because again, when you're doing a five gallon batch or so, you don't want to have you know five different hops in there. It was like Oh, a quarter ounce there. And then you have them all sitting around and, and then you just make hop soup at the end of the day. Um, so I am excited to kind of be able to dial that in a little more and just understand kind of how that can, you know, change our beers um, and experiment with that more. The other thing too, just to, to jump in there. And I mean, I know Sarah's doing the recipe design, but what's been fun is we've even at a homebrew level been taking our grains to a local farm. And so one of the things that they've been doing is letting us know when different ingredients are, you know, like, hey, we've got this, it's about to go bad. Do you guys want to do something with it? Last year, they did that with a bunch of habanero peppers because they know we like to brew with the jalapenos. And so we put together kind of a Mexican hot chocolate stout kind of beer where we put the jalapenos in with some milk chocolate and, and used a stout recipe we had. But one of the things that Sarah's been doing is um, she has kind of a base Saison recipe and then whatever ingredients we're getting from the local farms will kind of rotate through and do like a different type of produce. Like she's done a roasted golden beet, um, rutabaga, different things like that to 
Um, and Cezanne, we think, is the right style for it since it originated with farmers, you know, in, in Belgium and northern France. And so it's a nice way um, to have a little bit of that terroir because um, in Massachusetts, there are only like, I think, two or three malt houses and only one hops grower. So trying to make Massachusetts based beers is a little challenging because there isn't, you know, even our neighbors in upstate New York, there are way more, you know, growers of hops, way more growers of, of grain. It's not quite the same here. I think we're lagging a little bit from an agricultural point of view. So having local farms be able to, you know, provide ingredients that allow us to make a beer that literally you couldn't get somewhere else is also, I think, something that's fun because, you know, conservation is a big part of it. Community is a big part of it. So um, I've liked seeing her play with that of like, yeah, let's, let's figure out a way to like in- incorporate this. And then this year, because we actually have a garden, like our jalapeno pale ale was made with jalapenos we grew ourselves, which we were super stoked about. So uh, how did you go from homebrewing in a tiny New York apartment to opening a brewery in Massachusetts? I think the, I mean, again, it has been a dream of mine for, you know, almost 20 years. Um, And so it was always just in the back of our head and kind of thinking about what, what were we doing in an apartment without gas? Like what, what on earth? are we doing? What is life? Um, and so we had always kind of wanted to do this, but then when COVID hit, it's like, oh, we're not going out. We don't, you know, we had the time to sit down and write our business plan and actually talk about it. Um, whereas before it was just, we were off doing things and, you know, I would go to Pink Boot Society stuff. They have a, a great New York chapter. Um, but it was, we did not have the time to sit down and be like, all right, we need to answer some serious questions here. And so we knew kind of when we, towards the, the tail end of our time in Brooklyn, that we wanted to do this. Um, we understood we could not open in Brooklyn because there was not, not enough money for us. Um, so when we started, you know, we spent a year or two just kind of understanding where we wanted to be. Did we want to be upstate New York? Did we want to be Massachusetts? Um, you know, where else in New England did we want to be? So thinking of all that, and of course, all the, gazillion breweries we visited every time I go, I'm just like, Oh, I want that. I love that. Why did they do that? I hate that piece. What, you know, what is this? And just kind of every time we go to a brewery, not only enjoying the beer, but just looking at the atmosphere and just having my brain, you know, think about all of that. Um, so it, it was, it seems like it was a very quick jump, but it was actually, you know, it was, it was collecting all along the past couple of decades. And I think one of it, one of the things too, is like, you, you see this happen, I think a lot with different generations in New York where you, you land in New York and then at first you're like, oh my God, can I make it here? Some people don't, you know, but then you find your, your cohort and you find your friends. And then what happens is once your friends start having kids, they end up leaving because it's just basically impossible to raise kids in New York city. And we have a friend, couple of friends that have stayed and, and can do it. But for the most part, most people are like, oh my God, I can't do this in like a one bedroom apartment. And so they leave for the suburbs. And so I think in some ways we just reached an age too, where if the biggest reason we were staying in New York was in some ways our jobs, but then also because our social network was there. Well, if all those friends started leaving, that was a big part of our life. And so when COVID hit and we could take our jobs remotely, suddenly you, you had an opportunity to go somewhere else. And I think that that was always the biggest hindrance in the past was, okay, if we were to make this jump, like 
what would that even look like? Like, how would we make an income between now and when we open? You know, there were just a lot of practical life decisions that, um, you know, we're bootstrapping this whole thing. We're not independently wealthy. So it's like, how are we going to have an income from then till now? And what does that look like? And where could we work? And who's going to keep their job and who's not? And, um, you know, Sarah has a very good job. I, at one point in time, I did. I actually just went full time for Hot Plate recently as we get closer to opening. But, you know, those sort of things were made possible by COVID. And then there was an interesting thing in t- early 2020. Still, a friend of mine saw that a brew pub in New- somewhere in New Hampshire was for sale. And he like half jokingly, half seriously was like, hey, do you guys want to like go in with this, go in for this with me? And um, I think he was probably drunk when he told us this because it was just so out of the blue, but it got Sarah and I talking to be like, okay, well, you know, what would have to be true for us to actually go for it? And then that like opened up a whole series of conversations of like, maybe this is the right time. You know, this, this, we're sick of sheltering in place. We're sick of, sick of being, you know, stuck indoors. All of this is kind of falling apart around us. Um, you know, at the same time, my mom had actually gotten diagnosed with cancer. And so there was just like this pervasive feeling. And I think if we all think back to how we felt, especially in the spring of 2020, this pervasive feeling of like life is short, who knows what the hell's going on. You might as well do something you want to do because what does the future even look like? I mean, things have settled down. Things don't look quite as bleak, although things don't look rosy either. You know, there's at least a sense of like, okay, we're coming out of the pandemic and stuff like that. But you know, when we were seeing New York City completely shut down and all you heard were ambulances and, you know, that early days, it was like, oh my God. And so it was like, in some ways, and I hate to sound so uh, like over the top about it, but it's like, if there's ever like a sign from God of like the clouds parting saying like, this is the moment, it really felt like that in our lives, you know? And so it was like, we might as well go for it because what do we have to lose? Um, since then, you know, it is some days like, oh my God, are we crazy? But you know, at the time when we went full steam ahead, it was, it just felt like the time was right. And what was nice was when we picked Berkshire County, we found, you know, so Sarah had done some initial research. She did kind of what she does for her day job. And we looked at who is that craft beer consumer? What do those demographics look like? And where are the regions of the Northeast that are likely underserved? And so we saw that Berkshire County only had five breweries. And, but like, they really, like when you lay on those demographic numbers of like who drinks craft beer, like this is 100% like the target market. And so I reached out to what is the local chamber of commerce here and called them and was like, we think you guys could use another brewery. What do you guys think? And they were like super enthusiastic, put us in touch with the right people. You know, the city of Pittsfield has been amazing. They're actually one of our investors. They gave us money to come and start the brewery there to help revitalize downtown Pittsfield. Um, they see this as a really big win for the community as well. And then the people around here have just been such a support as well. So when we started testing the waters, we're like, I don't know that we're going to find another scenario where you have a community this excited, willing to help you fund your operation. And then, you know, the people that come out and like introduce you to all their friends because they want you to be successful. So I think when those things started falling into place, we're like, okay, let's go for it. You know, and so then we it went from like, we'd spend a week up here in an Airbnb and work remotely, you know, from up here to like, okay, let's sell our condo. Let's buy a house, you know, let's get settled. Let's do this. And so that's kind of how it all unfolded. I mean, I'm condensing probably like a two-year journey into to that story, but. Uh, but we're, we're also very risk averse and you wouldn't think that, you know, leaving jobs and um, opening a brewery, but it was one of those things where we were so like, we've saved, we've done this. We felt we did everything right. And it's just like, 
when our condo didn't have gas and when like the world shut down, we're like, then what are we doing? Like we've played it safe this whole time. So let's take a calculated risk, you know, not just throw it all to the wind, but. So what was the scariest part about making that leap? I think, um, I think it was leaving the city, honestly, because, um, you know, I have been able to keep my job, um, and Mike was able to keep his job as well, but it was just like, okay, we're, we're moving out of the city. It was kind of that, like that chapter of our life is over and we are, we are starting this. Um, and for me personally, it was feeling confident and being able to say like, I can do this. I did not go to a professional brewing school, but everybody makes it in this industry in a very interesting, different way. Um, But to be able to say to someone, I am the owner and I brew there, like to me, that's still sometimes scary because it's like, holy cow, this is not what I went to school for. This is not, but it's like, but I'm doing my classes. I'm doing Siebel. I'm doing all this to try and, you know, because I'm such a nerd. Like I, you know, if I don't have that certificate, then I don't feel valuable. But I think to me that 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 is still sometimes the scariest thing to be like, I'm doing this. I agree. I mean, you know, there's the financial risk. And one of the things, uh, you know, I know I've mentioned it before, but like, because we're not having kids, we're like, okay, well, it's not like we're like mortgaging our kids' education. You know, it's like there is, if we go bust, like we go bust, but it's just the two of us and we're, we're making this decision together with our eyes wide open. So it's not, even though the financial risk is real, it's like, okay, that's just something we're taking on. But I think for me, it was, you know, I, since I was a kid, you know, I was born and raised in New Jersey and then ended up moving to Pennsylvania, but New York was always like, that's where I'm going to end up. That's where I'm going to live. Like I belong in New York city. And so I had this idea of like, I'm going to move to New York city. I'm going to be a writer. I had a very specific vision of myself. And so it was scary to be like, you know what? That's not the way things went. Um, I I'm glad that we live there. I'm, I'm thankful for that time. Um, it was other than the last couple of years when we had no heat and hot water, it was a great experience, but it was time for us to kind of reinvent ourselves and to be in a position where it's like, okay, what's the next chapter of life? And I didn't have a script for that, you know, because I didn't really know what I wanted my future to look like. I knew I was getting burnt out in the things I was doing at the time, but we are now forging a path that like, this wasn't something that was like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to move to the Berkshires and start a brewery. And so it's like, it's in some ways, I think, uncharted territory, but like all things in life for me, that's been a double-edged sword because on one hand, um, as scary as that is, on the other hand, it's really freeing because it's like, okay, well, because this hasn't been in our vision, like we can forge our own path and whatever it is, is what it is. Um, but I think letting go of that sense of self, letting go of that sense of like, I think after a while, like being Brooklyners became a part of our identity. And being like, that's okay to let go. You know, that's okay for that to no longer be a part of our identity anymore. And, and now we're here and now we're doing this. Um, and now literally hot plate is our identity because we'll be in a place and people will just scream hot plate at us. So it's like, you know, we, we can see that like, you know, life has changed and, um, you know, not to get too deep and like woo woo about it, but like that's actually allowed us to grow in really exciting ways that I don't think we anticipated, but that grew out of that fear of like, wow, like if we, if we say that we're doing this, then we're doing it. And, and we have to live with that. So whatever the consequences are, like we own that now. And I think that when you're just 
when it's always this dream, it's like perfect and intact because it doesn't have to be in the real world and people can't evaluate like whether or not it's working or stuff like that. So it's, it's been a lot of like, I think psychological, you know, psychological, uh, transformations happening and, and really understanding what it means to be a small business owner. I mean, we've both had corporate jobs for most of our careers and just having that steady paycheck, even though there are days where you hate your job and you are like that office space worker and you want to like beat the shit out of a fax machine or something like you still have the paycheck, you still have the benefits, you have the, you know, four or, uh, yeah, the 401k or whatever. Um, now we're, now we're building our business. We're going to employ other people. We're going to be responsible for other people's paychecks. Um, we're going to be responsible for like something you put in your own body. You know, you're going to get drunk off of our, or at least get, get a buzz off of our products. You know, that's a responsibility. Um, to strangers, you know, it's one thing if our friends come over and it's like, okay, you know, caveat emptor, you entered our house and you're going to drink our beer. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of responsibility that we're taking on. And, um, I think we're like getting in the right headspace, but all of those things are brand new to us. And, you know, we're, and we're coming at this a little bit later in life. Um, so it's, a, it's been a big change in that way. Damn, it must feel good to be a gangster. <laughs> right <laughs> right so um one of the things that that i'm always excited about is you know minority owned breweries and uh, for those who are watching and those who are uh listening in the podcast that hot plate is a latin owned brewery um i would like you guys to talk about the experience of you know while being a minority in the brewery space you know being a couple that is increasing the diversity of the brewing segment. I can go. Um, it, it, uh, for me, it, it was challenging, you know, part of why we kind of put off, why I put off the stream a little bit. One, it was just like, I don't know what brewing is like, let's go use our degrees, but also I didn't see myself in the brew house. You know, I only kind of saw myself, especially going to a school like Penn state where you have the sales reps come and, you know, they're giving away free swag at a bar and it's just like busty women. And you're like, Ooh, I, I, I don't want to do that. Like, is there anything else in beer? Um, and then kind of, I've just had to be on the journey about, am I Latina? Am I not, you know, and, and it has been a struggle for me to identify as that because I was born in California. We moved to New Hampshire when I was eight. Um, and so, I was very brown in a very white state. Uh, luckily, it's diversified a little bit. Um, but um, kind of understanding who I needed to be and what role I had to play. And because um, my dad was of the generation where he was supposed to excel and kind of get out of, you know, the lower income status. And so he did not teach me Spanish. Um, you know, he had to pretend to be white. Um and Mike's father came from Italy when he was 16 and he had the, you know, Mike had the same experience where like he didn't learn Italian because his dad was like, I have to be American. Um, so there is a challenge of, I can understand it quite well. My grandmother would always speak it to me and being around all my dad's cousins and everything, but I still do have trouble, you know, speaking back, but it doesn't mean that I'm not Latina. And I think I've only in the past couple of years been able to say that and feel comfortable with that. Um, and so being part 
of a of pink boot society, so women in beer, and then being able to kind of see what that what the Latina, Latinx, however you identify, uh, cohort within that is just so small. Um, and so again, it's just like, well, we're just humans. Can't we all just brew beer? Um, but I have had to understand that I've had different experiences than other people. And so let me tell that story through beer as well. I think the other thing too is, um, you know, thankfully, you know, Sarah's had a chance to meet people like the, the founders of lifting Lucy, which is, you know, dedicated to, um, the BIWOC community, like Sarah said, which is a tiny fraction of the overall craft beer industry. And so, you know, on one hand, I think we all understand how representation matters. If you see yourself in a space and it's not tokenism, but like you're, you're in a position of leadership or you're in a position where you're an owner or a head brewer. And I think that that's what we're excited about is, you know, Sarah's not just working front of house, you know, she owns this brewery, she is the Brewster. And so I think that has some level of influence but the other thing that we're trying to do is actually use our professional backgrounds and training to actually make the craft beer world a little more inclusive. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the things, and it's funny because when I talk to even other brewery owners or people who work in breweries, like they, their eyes kind of roll back in our head when we talk about using our data-driven approach where, you know, you said you segment the whole craft beer world, you start figuring out personas within those segments and you start figuring out, okay, well, if we do these kinds of events and make these kinds of beers and market to these kinds of people, you know, this is how you can start bringing new people into the fold. And one of the things we're also working on doing is working with different cultural groups locally. Pittsfield is the most diverse uh, er uh, town or city in the Berkshires. The Berkshires themselves are overwhelmingly white, but there is a diverse population in Pittsfield. So you know, I have a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks with the uh, Berkshire Black Economic Council, for, for example, and talking to them about how we can work together to, you know, just help them understand like what we're doing, what we're about. You know, Sarah's connected with the local Latinas group here and helping them kind of see that craft beer can be more than, you know, just New England IPAs and people on untapped and, you know, kind of what it has become codified around today. Um, and go back to just, again, that to me, what was fun about the early days of craft beer was it was fun. It was kind of like punk rock and, you know, people just kind of came to it and um, there wasn't that sort of stereotype that there exists today of like the dude with the glasses and the flannel shirt. And I mean, I know I've <laughs> the beard, the glasses, I'm like almost there of, of the archetype of like the craft beer dude, you know, but trying to break <laughs> that up a little bit, you know, and, and trying to, um, really address that head on. And I would say that became more clear to us last summer after Brianne Allen's expose came out and really talked about where the lack of uh, diversity and equity and all the sexism, all the racism, all the stuff that was existing in this industry that like no one was really talking about, but everyone kind of knew existed. And that was what helped us realize like some of our private complaints or our private dissatisfactions with the status quo was actually shared by a lot of other people. And so we felt like we were already a brewery and planning by that point. And so we were like, well, okay, let's be a change agent. Let's make it our mission to, to be that change agent. And I think Sarah, both as a Latin woman, but also as a researcher who understands how to go out and find new audiences and figure out how to connect with new people, like she's actually very well positioned to do that. And so um, that's how we've kind of built this whole model. Again, maybe we're insane and maybe we're not going to be able to achieve it, but that's kind of the goal is to, again, try to break down barriers 
and meet people where they are, you know, because I think that part of the problem is um, there is this idea of like, oh, that's for this kind of person or that's for this, these kinds of people. That's not for us. And like, that's just a fiction. You can change that. You can make it for other people and, and find the ways into it. Find what's a culturally relevant thing for them. Can we do a collaboration with a certain community group and, you know, invite them on brew day and have Sarah talk about this and design a custom recipe. I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm re I'm reading uh, Sam Calgione's book right now. And I think about the early days of dogfish head and, you know, whatever you think about them now, what was cool about what they were doing was that idea of like, like that their Pangea beer, where it's like, let's get ingredients from all over the world, you know, and there, there was a fermented beverage tradition from all over the world. So how do we just help people see that? Like, again, this is like the anti Reinheitsgebot. This is the anti German purity law. Like, you know, beer can be whatever you make it. It doesn't have to be, you know, in this very codified, you know, narrow confines. And so uh, that's, that's kind of what we've become about in, and I think Sarah's recipes and her approach to recipe design has mirrored our actual business objectives in a way that for me as a, as a former marketer, I get super excited about. And as a storyteller, I get super excited about because I think that there's a real nice integration of all of those values um, across the board. I think just kind of one more thing to add. I think <clears throat> it's important for me to be, you know, a woman and be like, Hey, we can drink beer. We can enjoy beer. You know, we know about beer. Um, but at the same time, there is a stereotype of you know, the drunken Mexican and this, and it's just like, ah, as a Mexican, I can also responsibly enjoy beer. And I am, you know, can have some, it's like, yes, do I love Tecate? Absolutely. But, you know, I can do different things and I don't have to have a bajillion of them and just be that stereotype. But so it's also breaking down dif a different stereotype. That's true. We always seem to have to remind people that women have been brewing beer for 5,000 fucking years. So it exactly. Be yeah, it's shocking to understand that. It's shocking. It's like, what? you know, I don't no. understand why people don't understand that. And uh, kind of going back to uh, Mike, what you had mentioned about uh, about lifting Lucy, that uh, we did have uh, an episode back in June uh, at that time was named Drinking While Black, episode two. Minus the electric boogaloo. I think we're gonna we're gonna change it. We're gonna change it to, to black hops. Uh, but uh, Ashley Rudolph was was I believe she was on the episode. There was one of my guests that was that didn't make it. So I, I felt like it was her that didn't make it. I could be wrong. If you were on it, Ashley, I apologize. Um, I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, let alone what happened on June eighteenth. Uh, so. Uh, going into uh, my next question, uh, which actually Mike kind of alluded to it, alluded to it about recipes. And as a person who has done a little bit of homebrew myself, uh, unfortunately, I have not homebrewed in probably I'd say almost four years. Um, what does it what does it take to create a good beer recipe? I'm going to disappear for a second as I get rid of this dog into the room. That's a deep question. Uh, yeah, it is. Because again, it's like, well, if it tastes good, it is good. Um, I was extremely intimidated to start writing recipes because, you know, while I grew up cooking and baking, it's like understanding, like it said, like baking, you have to follow those rules. If you accidentally use baking soda instead of baking powder, like your recipe's fucked. So, you know, but with cooking, add a little bit of this, add a little bit of that. So by learning how to write recipes, be like, okay, well, this is how it came out. And, you know, we learned early on every brew day, you have to 
take notes because I too cannot even remember what I had for breakfast or lunch today. Um, so you make these notes and it's like, okay, if, you know, you know, we have, um, our, our flagship pale ale, we're like, okay, what if we, what if we just took down, what if we just did like a, you know, 20 love a bond versus 40, you know, like just different things. And we just tweaked a little bit and then we would save our bottles and compare and kind of build our own beer library. Um, but to me, it's a good recipe is one, if it comes out and ferments, um, it doesn't spoil. And if people other than you like it. I think the other thing is it takes patience. Um, and it doesn't just take patience on like brew day. It takes patience to get something right. And, you know, I think that that is what it, I remember like very early on, it was maybe my second ever brew. And my brother was still living in Brooklyn at the time. And um, I was brewing a lot because Sarah was traveling internationally for work at the time. So this was just a perfect way for me to kill a Saturday. And so my brother, I think, had this idea of like, oh, brewing beer, it's going to be awesome. Not realizing like, first of all, brew day takes a while. Secondly, it takes two weeks to ferment. And like Sarah mentioned, we were bottle conditioning. So then it's another two weeks to bottle condition before you can actually drink the beer. And so I think a lot of people don't understand the fermentation science behind it. So they're like, oh, I brew beer. It's very slow. And then you don't know your results for a while if it came out well or not. I mean, there are ways you can you know, determine if the fermentation was happening right or not. But, you know, you're from the time where, you know, you start your mash to you're drinking the finished product, like that does take time. And then to dial in a recipe that actually does what you want it to do takes a lot of trial and error, a lot of AV testing, like Sarah was saying of like, okay, what if we do it where we're going to use, you know, Centennial instead of Cascade? What if we do it where we dr bring down the malt? What if we ferment at a slightly higher temperature? Like, there are all these different variables that you just want to play with to see if that can just get you a little bit closer to where you want to be. I think what's nice is as you learn this art and science more, you start to say, okay, I actually wanted that to be a little less bitter. So why don't we add this hop a little later in the boil? Or you start to understand what you need to do to kind of get it closer to what you want it to be. But all of that takes a lot of time. I mean, it takes weeks for one batch. It takes years to even get something to come out the way you want it to. And it takes, I think, several years till you really start to understand how to deconstruct, um, you know, what you want to do. The moment where I saw that Sarah finally knew how to do this was, it was actually her first recipe. And she made that chamomile blonde ale that she alluded to. And she had been saying to me for a while, like, look, I have this idea in my head. There was this milk, uh, beer called Milk and Honey that uh, Greenpoint Brewery in Brooklyn had done. And it had some of the same um, ingredients and some of the same mouthfeel and flavor that Sarah was interested in. But she's like, well, I want to add chamomile and I want to dial this up and I want to dial that down. And she was describing this beer for months of like this idea that she had in her head. And she finally was like, well, let me just write the damn recipe. You know, there was a, a women's homebrew showcase in, I think, March of 2018 or 2019 back in the day. And that was enough of an impetus for her to finally be like, okay, I'm going to write this recipe. I'm going to brew it. I'm going to make it. And at that point, I think Sarah wasn't like super well-known in the homebrew world, but what was great about that was a lot of people kept coming back to our table being like, what is this? I've never had a beer like this before. And so it was that early validation of not only could she make the recipe she had in her head, but like she said, other people were also like, yes, and I like this too, you know, because I think sometimes that's the biggest thing that making the jump from homebrewing to going commercial is like, you might make this 
incredibly specific beer that like you and your five buddies like, but like, can you actually get strangers to also like it? And that becomes, you know, and I know that there are some people who never want to make the jump from homebrewing to commercial for a number of reasons. Um, one of those reasons I think is, you know, everything's your precious little baby. If you put it out on the market, you know, it might not succeed or, or you can't even scale up that recipe because it would cost you a million dollars to make. So, you know, I think one of the things that I saw Sarah do from her recipe design was take all of those different elements into consideration about, you know, can we actually make this on a commercial level? Does it actually appeal to certain people? And like I said, as we start having our strategy, you know, right now, one of the conversations we're having is like, okay, what beers do we launch with when we open? And so it's like, okay, what beers do we think will resonate with the right kinds of people based on some of this stuff? So, um, again, I, I think that's like another layer. Um, so it's not just recipe design, but as you move into commercial production, okay, we want the beer to be good, but will it appear appeal to enough people that's not sitting in your kegs for a long time? And, and that adds a new dimension you have to think about as well. Well, Mike and Sarah, uh, this conversation has been amazing. I feel like you guys could probably do your own show weekly talking about your uh, – um, your, your beer and talking about your story. Uh, you guys have a great story as we end the show and we end it each and every week. Uh, we like to end with a, a nice fun question, um, to kind of put a nice bow at the end. So I will start with Wendy. Wendy, what is your final question for Mike and Sarah? <laughs> so you said fun, but mine might not necessarily be as fun, but, um, it kind of could be, we have a lot of, uh, homebrewers that listen to our show and I know that they, pretty much all have the dream of one day opening their own brewery. So what piece of advice would you give them? Have a rich friend. You have, yeah, have a rich friend. <laughs> Inherit millions of dollars. Which we need. We still need one. If any, we're yeah. still taking applications for rich I, I mean, I say that facetiously, but one of the things I will say is when we started this project in earnest, you know, we started the putting the wheels in motion. We thought we had a budget that was well thought out. You know, we talked to a lot of breweries, we talked to a lot of places, we got quotes from all kinds of vendors. You know, we thought we had done our homework about okay, this is how much of the build out's going to cost, this is how much the equipment's going to cost. And then in the last year, from basically when we got all those quotes to okay, it's go time, stuff's going on. Steel went from being like a dollar fifty a pound to like six bucks a pound. And suddenly our budget got busted and we were scrambling to find the financing to get this project done. And, you know, everyone knows that it's expensive and everyone knows that any construction project is going to be more expensive than you want it to be. Um, those financial concerns are real, you know, and if you don't just have like independent wealth or you have limited access to capital, you know, thinking about, okay, if you underestimated how much this is going to cost, where does that leave you? So I'd hate to be such a downer because we made it work. So it's possible. It definitely is possible. But like, um, really understand like how are you going to get the capital to do it um because like again if you're going to be crazy like us and say like okay we're going to make this our future and like you know take our personal savings and put this into the project like you're you are exposing yourself so you know the financial stuff has been i think a, a big challenge for us i think uh, mine would be to just have patience uh because it is a roller coaster ride and it does it take a long time and there's a lot of periods of like hurry up and wait um, so just have patience and use the time that nothing's, you know, quote unquote, nothing's happening in the planning. Um, but, you know, if you're waiting on a lease to sign or something like 
use that time to really look at your recipes. Rob, what is your final question? I kind of got two. So I'm going to start with Sarah on this one, because this this might be like a, a super callback on this one, because I see that you've uh, worked with uh, Nickelodeon and their international research team. I'm curious, uh, is there slime everywhere? And do you get slimed if you ever say the phrase, I don't know? I, we, like, I have not been slimed yet. And like, I just, I want that so bad. Um, I do somewhere in some deck and I feel like it's on my Google drive somewhere. I have one of the recipes, so maybe I'll just do that. Um, It'd be great if you there, got slimed right now. There, yeah, <laughs> there is there very secret about like, there is a guy who's like, he manages the slime. There is not slime everywhere, but there is like the slime on notebooks on, you know, like the, we get a ton of cool product. So, and the Nickelodeon orange is, is always there. We were actually talking to someone last night about, because he knew that Sarah works at Nickelodeon currently, and he was like, are you going to slime people in the tap room? I was like, that would be amazing (laughs) if we could figure out when you say, like, I don't know, and then you just get slimed at Hot Plate. (laughs) Be amazing. All right. So, Mike, first, um, I have read The Woman in the Closet. Um, That... uh, Holy hell, that certainly was it made a, a twist in the end. And I, I would I would implore people uh, who like well, you really did your homework <laughs> to to go out to everydayfiction.com and check out the woman in the closet. Um, it is it is a really, really cool story. It ad- actually had me trying to figure out, like, who is he talking about? Is this Ava? Is this Juan? Is this like a general that was in the army? And like. It was, was this an actual person? It just it just really, really compelled me on that one. Um, but I am curious, since you're a storyteller, 10 words or less, what story do you want Hot Plate Brewing to tell? 10 words. My, I, This is a great question. I am in on this, Mike. 10. Uh, I, I, can, I think I can do it for three. Um, and I know that... Yeah, I, that would I, be I the or less part, Mike. Yeah, exactly. I can <laughs> do it in three. Just trying to help here. Yeah, I can do it in three. It's, it is actually stealing, I think, someone else's like nonprofit name. But beer is for everyone. You know, I, I think we truly believe that beer is for everyone. And not everyone can consume it. Either they're, you know, they're sober or they have a gluten intolerance or whatever. But part of what we're trying to do, and again, with the community line and, and serving the community, is through a craft brewery wanting to make a local impact in the city of Pittsfield and the larger Berkshire community here, we can activate our space to be for everyone. And it does not have to just belong to a small sliver of the population. So for me, that is Hot Plate story because we brought people together to get ourselves through a really tough time in our life. And we learned that the whole magic of all of this is bringing people together and coming out of COVID, you know, what could be to me more impactful than remembering how great it is to be in social settings together have those conversations, catch up with a lost friend, you know, or make a new friend and just have those moments. I think we all lost out on too long of those organic nights where you just, it took a twist. You maybe never knew what the night was going to take you. Like that, that's what is great about the craft beer world is you, you drink delicious beverages, you make new friends and, you know, it just brings people together. So for me, you know, a hundred percent, if we could, if we could really evangelize beers for everyone that's to us a job well done 
I think that's one thing a lot of people miss during COVID time is the ability to meet, greet, and chat with people at the bar, at the brewery, yeah. uh, to talk over shared experiences. Uh, my final question, this is going to be for everyone, including myself, um, but as we did our, our research a little bit on uh, you guys and your history, uh, you mentioned on the website that uh, you were or are employed with Adult Swim, Sarah. Um, so my question for everyone, uh, and we'll start with Sarah and Mike, go to Rob and Wendy, and then I'll end it with my answer. What is your favorite adult swim cartoon? Tom goes to the mayor. Tom goes to the mayor. (laughs) All right. I'm going to be basic, but I, I love Aqua Teen Hunger Force. I just love that show. There's a reason why there's movies, I think movies and like there, there's a lot to it. Um, I had forgot what Tom goes to the mayor was until I just see a photo of it right now. And now I definitely remember the show. <laughs> it was good. Uh, Rob, what about you? What was your favorite uh, adult swim show? It kind of a crazy tie. I would put it between 12 ounce mouse and black Jesus. Oh, oh black Jesus was so, yep. <laughs> mm. Wendy, oh, there's some like all of this is flooding back now. I feel yeah, like Lucy, I, daughter I feel of like the devil, was another. Good I was one. just gonna say Lucy. Yeah, yeah. you know this uh, is. Oh, go on, Wendy. Sorry. Oh, that's right. It's been a long time since I've watched Adult Swim because you know it's kind of late. But uh, <laughs> uh, Robot Chicken yes. was my mm. favorite. I still yeah. quote some of the Robot Chicken early on ones. So brilliant. I definitely have watched the uh, the Robot Chicken Star Wars episodes um, and oh, paired yeah. them with the Family Guy episodes. And I love when like <sighs> Seth Green makes, you know, they make comments uh, with Seth Green on the Family Guy. For me, and this is a, a weird one, um, a lot of the people that I uh, am, you know, friends with will recall this show just because we, we quote this one all the time. And that's Frisky Dingo. Mm. Um <sighs> I can't tell you how many times like we'll randomly scream the words like slideshow. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's definitely mine. I was never in. This is the thing is that I saw that before I saw like any of the other seventy thirty shows. So I didn't see C Lab before. Yeah, um, but yeah, C Lab's a classic. Boondocks yep. is a classic. Yep. Absolute classic. <laughs> Uh, so hot plate brewing, uh, you guys are going to be in Pittsville, Massachusetts goal is before the end of the year. Um, where can they find you social media wise? So we're most active on Instagram. Um, you can find us at hot plate beer on Instagram and, you know, we're trying to post multiple days a week there and, and we keep people posted kind of on our build out process too, on the stories and stuff like that. Um, we are on Facebook, although, uh, it's weird. Facebook is like super popular in the Berkshire still. So, you know, we're on there to reach people, but we're more active on Instagram. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. That is episode 305. Once again, a reminder, we will be gone the next two weeks. Uh, We will be back on November 18th with The Brewery out of Southern California. No matter what you think of your beer, we think it's better on draft. Have a good night. Number one in the hood, G. (laughs) Peace.